This is the ministry from Sovereign Grace Reformed Church in Tiverton, Devon, United Kingdom. Our reading this evening is uh, 2 Timothy and chapter 2. 2 Timothy and chapter 2, and we commence at verse 1. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 2, commencing <clears throat> at verse 1. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. The husbandman that laboureth must be first partaker of the fruits. Consider what I say, and the Lord give thee understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord, that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honour and some to dishonour. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honour, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, 
but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. And as ever we trust that the Lord will add his own special blessing to the reading of his infallible word. Amen. Well, this evening we are continuing our studies in the second letter of Paul to Timothy. This will be our third study. We've already completed a study of Paul's first letter to Timothy. And as you know, I hope that we will be able to study his letter to Titus also in due course. And those three epistles, as I've mentioned before, are often together referred to as the pastoral epistles. Perhaps not only because they are addressed to some early Christian pastors, but also because they provide us with guidance as to both the qualifications and the responsibilities of pastors. We know that both Timothy and Titus were Paul's sons in the faith, and that they both had pastoral responsibility. Timothy at Ephesus and Titus on the island of Crete. And as mentioned before, Paul wrote to them with the intention of helping them to ensure that what took place in the churches for which they were responsible would be acceptable in God's sight. In our last study, last month, we considered the first half of 2 Timothy 2, and we saw then how vital it is to ensure that sound doctrine is relayed from generation to generation by faithful men. We also saw how believers are to be like good soldiers, enduring hardness for the sake of him who has enlisted us into his army. We also saw how we are to be like trained athletes, striving lawfully, meaning that we live our lives in accordance with God's standards. And ministers can also regard themselves as husbandmen, men who have to labour in the Lord's service, but who will be rewarded for that labour. And Paul urged Timothy to commit these examples to memory, so that he might be helped when the going got tough. Now he, Paul, was in prison, and he was, as it were, an example to Timothy of the price that might have to be paid for faithful service to Christ. Paul was determined to endure whatever came his way for the sake of the gospel. And we concluded our study last month by considering what sought to be part of a baptismal hymn which was used by the early church, which Paul quoted as it contained truths which would encourage believers in times of persecution. Paul wrote, it is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. And we saw how we can rely on that faithfulness of Christ to us, even when we cannot rely on our own faithfulness to him. Well, this evening 
we are going to be considering the last 13 verses of this second chapter of 2 Timothy and I trust that we shall again be reminded of the danger of false teaching. I also trust that we shall see how we can all either be vessels unto honour or unto dishonour. Well, first of all, we see Paul charging Timothy to charge others at Ephesus in relation to their conduct, with regard to their conduct, particularly in relation to public discourse on spiritual matters. Paul wrote this, Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Paul had been reminded, reminding Timothy of various truths, and now it was Timothy's job to remind others of these things, put them in remembrance. Timothy was to be a teacher of true doctrine, opposing anyone who taught anything that was contrary to the truth, or any who majored on things that were not only insignificant but could lead to ungodliness. Timothy was, we might say, God's man at Ephesus and thus it fell to him to charge people there before the Lord, meaning that he was to charge them using the God-given authority of his position, warning them in the name of the Lord that they would be accountable before God if they persisted in their unprofitable behaviour, which we can see included striving about words to no profit but to the subverting of the hearers. It's felt from what Paul goes on to say, and by comparing other statements made by Paul elsewhere in his letters to both Timothy and Titus, that human philosophy was at the root of what was going wrong at Ephesus. Rather than sticking to the truth of the gospel of God's grace, there were those at Ephesus who engaged in wars of words using human reasoning and logic. And this only led to confusion amongst those who were listening and weakened the faith of some unstable converts. Now you might have heard the term Christian apologetics and this refers to the defense of the christian faith using both reason and evidence now whilst there may be some merit in apologetics for we know that the apostle peter said that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear Nevertheless, it can be pointless debating with those who do not and will not accept the divine authority of God's word. And you know, this is because each side is arguing from completely opposite and contradictory positions. Unbelievers will not accept the authority of the scriptures and and believers should not accept the implied authority of any human reasoning. It was human reasoning that was the basis of what is known as the higher criticism movement of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. 
a movement which led to men seeking, amongst other things, rational explanations for the supernatural events that are recorded in the scriptures. Well, this happened many centuries, obviously, after Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus were written, but it shows us, does it not, that the problems that were being faced by Timothy and Titus were not isolated incidents that weren't going to be repeated. Rather, they were indicative of the opposition to gospel truth that believers can expect down the ages. Now, we see that Paul urged Timothy to be diligent in his ministry, for he wrote this, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And this is a threefold directive that all ministers of God's word should take to heart. Firstly, ministers are to seek to be diligent in presenting themselves and their ministry as approved unto God doing what they are called to do in a way that pleases God, irrespective of whether or not it pleases men. Now, I'm not saying that God's ministers are to set out to trigger dissension in their congregations deliberately just for the sake of it. Rather, they must have as their priority doing that which is right in God's sight and knowing that God's people will be blessed by a faithful ministry, even when it is necessary for them to be reproved or rebuked. What an honour it would be for any minister to have on his tombstone, here lies a man approved unto God. In our last study, we saw how ministers can be likened to those who labour on the land. And the second point we can note from verse 15 of 2 Timothy 2 is that they can also be likened to workmen, workmen who need not to be ashamed. Now, you've all heard of workmen who should have been ashamed of the quality of some of their work. We call them cowboys, don't we? But there have been... As you know, TV programmes with hidden cameras highlighting how some workmen have bodged jobs. And I expect that some of us who may have attempted DIY jobs ourselves may not have been wanted them to be subject to any professional inspection. But many of us will also have seen jobs that have been executed with great professionalism, with the finished work being something to admire where the workman has taken pains to ensure that he has done a good job. And this is the standard to which ministers of God's word should aspire, having no reason to be ashamed. Now every minister of God's word will freely admit that their work has been imperfect. But we do know from the scriptures that there is a difference between some men's ministry and that of others. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 10 to 15, you'll find there these words. That's 1 Corinthians 3 verses 10 to 15. According to the grace of God which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is 
Christ Jesus. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now, some people have felt that those six verses are all to do with how believers themselves are responsible for the Christian lives that they live. But I'm convinced that they are primarily to do with the fact that ministers of God's word will be held accountable by God for their ministry, the evidence of which will be seen in the lives of those who have sat under their ministry. And this leads us to the third point derived from 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. Timothy was ever to be rightly dividing the word of truth, which means that he was to accurately expound the scriptures. Now, the Greek word described, uh, translated here rather as rightly dividing is a word often used to describe the, the cutting of a straight road through difficult terrain. And so someone who actually expounds the scriptures will guide the people of God through the scriptures, not being deflected to engage in side issues, in unnecessary and unhelpful debate. How we need men in every generation who rightly divide the word of truth and give God's people a good understanding of his word. Now, you will have noticed that I have equated the word of truth with the scriptures as a matter of course, since there is nothing else that fits that description so uniquely. Our Saviour, in what has come to be known as his high, high priestly prayer, said this, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. And if we ever need to judge the truth or something, then it must be compared with the yardstick of the scriptures. Now earlier, I observed what an honour it would be for a minister to have on his tombstone, here lies a man approved of God. But would it not be equally honourable to have this? Here lies a man who rightly divided the word of truth. And you know, this cannot be said of every man who occupies the pulpit, and it certainly couldn't be said of such men as Hymenaeus and Philetus. The Apostle Paul wrote these words, But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus who concerning the truth have heard, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. There were false teachers at Ephesus, and on the, and on the island of Crete, those whose ministry consisted of profane and vain babblings, heretical utterances which had damaged those who had paid attention to them. And such false teaching promoted ungodliness 
as opposed to godliness. You know, false teaching can be likened to a cancerous growth or perhaps to something like gangrene, both of which are destructive. They may start off as relatively small problems, but they can spread to the detriment of the whole body. Now, we come across this man, Hymenaeus, in Paul's first epistle to Timothy in chapter 1 and verse 20, and there we saw how both he and a man named Alexander had been excommunicated from the church because of their blasphemy. And now in 2 Timothy we see him linked with Philetus, both of whom were false teachers. The heresy attributable to these men was their claim that there was no resurrection which believers could anticipate by teaching that any resurrection had already taken place. Now, it has to be admitted that commentators, scholars, are not sure of the reason why these men taught what they did. It's been suggested that their teaching may have been that baptism was the only resurrection that believers would ever experience. Alternatively, they may have taught that we live on only through our children. Whatever the basis of their false teaching may have been, it had a detrimental effect, since we're told how it overthrew the faith of some. Now, the resurrection of the dead is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. And we can see this, can we not, from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. If you go to that first letter, if you go to chapter 15, we see there commencing at verse 12 what Paul wrote about the resurrection. So that's 1 Corinthians 15, commencing at verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are also found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which have fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But, one of the glorious buts in the scripture, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Anyone who denies the future resurrection of the body denies a basic Christian doctrine. And we can easily see how this heresy would have had such a detrimental effect on the early church, especially in times of persecution. What would have been the point of all that believers were suffering if there was nothing to look forward to? However, despite the onslaught from false teachers, we see that Paul was confident that the truth would prevail. He wrote this, Nonetheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and 
Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. You see, we can have confidence in the fact that the church is God's church, that he is sovereign over everything, that he will ensure that the truth of the gospel of his grace will overcome all false teaching. Our trust is not in men, no matter how good those men might be. Our trust is in God. Now, this is not to say that false teaching will ever be completely eradicated whilst this world exists, for in every generation it will be necessary for God's ministers to combat heresy and all other harmful teaching. But God's people can be assured that the foundation of God standeth sure, and that God has set his seal to this. The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, wrote Paul. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now it's believed that Paul here is quoting freely from chapter 16 of the book of Numbers. Freely and not word for word. And verse 16 of, uh, sorry, verse 5 of number 16 has this record. As how Moses spake unto Korah and unto all his company, saying, even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy and will cause him to come near unto him. Even him whom he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. The Lord knows who his true people are and he also knows those whose hearts are against him. Just as in the Old Testament dispensation, God knew that Korah and his associates were rebels who deserved divine punishment. So he was well aware of the wickedness of Hymenaeus and Philetus in the New Testament dispensation. And number 16 and verse 26 tells us this, that Moses spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. And later on in Numbers 16, verse 22, we see that all those who never separated themselves from the rebels perished also. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And can we not take great comfort in that fact? The Lord Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. We can rest assured that the Lord knows who his true people are and who they are who only purport to be his people. Now, in a church, you may often find a mixture of believers and unbelievers. Certainly that's likely to be the case in some of those very big churches. And we may not be able to positively identify all those who belong to God and those who are outside of Christ. Paul wrote these words, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honour and some to dishonour. Now, one well-known commentator is on record as saying that all the vessels mentioned here represent believers, some of whom are living honourably 
but also others whose Christian lives are dishonourable. Well, he's entitled to his view, but you see, I cannot see that that can be so, particularly when you consider that Paul has just been referring to men associated with the church who were subverting the faith of others with their heretical teaching. I feel sure that Paul is using the analogy of different containers in a house to show us that not everyone who goes to church is necessarily a true believer. Indeed, and it's sad to say this, some churchgoers seem to be outright enemies of the truth. Now we know from the Gospels, do we not, that situations can arise where it can be difficult for us to distinguish those who are true believers from those who are not. Consider, first of all, the parable which we find in Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew chapter 13, commencing at verse 24. Another parable put he, that is the Lord Jesus, forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then have it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, what might not be very obvious just from the reading of that passage is that it can be very difficult to tell the difference between wheat and tares, since they can appear very similar. And did you know also that in the Middle East, it can also be very difficult to distinguish between sheep and goats, as they look so similar. In Matthew 25 and verses 31 to 34, we're told this, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, some people have believed it should be quite easily to tell the difference between wheat and tares in a field and between sheep and goats, but it's not as simple as it might seem. I've been to Israel a couple of times and uh, they haven't got the woolly sheep that we've got in this country. They look like goats. You can't, it's very difficult to tell them apart. And so it won't be until the Day of Judgment in some cases that we will know for certain where some people really stand, as is apparent from the parable of the tears. But the question that we need to ask ourselves in the meantime this evening is this. Are we sure where we stand? 
Now, coming back to our passage, what did the apostle mean when he spoke of people purging themselves? He said, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honour, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. And by this he surely meant that if a man steers clear of men such as Hymenaeus and Philetus and refutes their heresies, he would be considered a vessel unto honour. We are to shun the defiling company of those in gross error, lest we ourselves become tainted by their polluted teaching. All believers, but ministers of God's word especially, are to separate themselves from false teachers, and will thus be set apart or sanctified to be used of God. Is it not an honourable thing to be considered meat for the master's use, fit to be used in the master's service, and prepared unto every good work? So where do we stand in this respect? Are we fit for purpose? Are we standing ready to be used of God when called upon? Now, Timothy was a relatively young man for an elder, which is clear from 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12, which we studied previously. And, you know, men may be more susceptible to some sins in their youth than when they are more mature. So when Paul tells Timothy to flee youthful lusts, he is warning him to take positive steps to avoid such temptations. Now, sexual desire may be the first thing that comes to mind when we think of that which may cause a young man problems, but, you know, there's more to it than that. For example, young men can be impatient. Young men can be proud. They might contend for the truth, but they might do so in an ungracious way. I know of a group of young men in the church who were collectively known as the TBNGs. TBNGs. And that stands for truth but no grace. Truth but no grace. And I know that because I was one of them. Now, Timothy had been considered mature enough to occupy the office of an elder, but he needed to be aware of potential pitfalls. We see that he was to flee, to run away from youthful sins, but he was also to follow after, to pursue righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Positive virtues are to be coveted, are they not? Those qualities that set apart the godly from the ungodly. Righteousness based upon the word of God, faithfulness to God, to his word and to the people of God, self-denying love towards others and a heartfelt desire for harmonious relationships with us. Are these not qualities to be sought after? And notice carefully that these things are to be followed with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. We are to shun the company of some, but we are to actively seek the company of them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Proverbs 27 and verse 17 tells us this, Iron sharpeneth iron. So a man sharpeneth the countenance 
of his friend. And we see from this that we will benefit from the company of God's true people, them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Now, it's not necessarily wrong to be found sometimes in the company of unbelievers, provided that we have a good motive for doing so. But, you know, the company of believers is always much to be preferred. At Ephesus, as we have seen from both epistles to Timothy, there was much unprofitable discussion. In 1 Timothy 1 and verse 4, we saw Paul writing this, Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. And already this evening we've seen the folly of striving about words to no profit but to the subverting of the hearers and of how we must shun profane and vain babblings for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And Paul continues in this vein when he writes this to Timothy, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid knowing that they do gender strifes. You see, there are some things that are not really worth much discussion, especially if we can foresee that such discussion may only cause trouble. We shouldn't major on minors, as someone once said. Now, as I've said before, this doesn't mean that we are to avoid difficult questions. But it does mean that such matters are only to be addressed when it serves a worthwhile purpose. What purpose, for example, can be served by a debate as to how many angels could dance on a pinhead or such like it? In chapter 3 and verse 9 of his letter to Titus, we see that Paul wrote this. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. So we need to ensure, do we not, that all our conversation remains profitable. Unnecessary controversy is to be avoided, particularly by those who lead God's people by example. Paul wrote these words, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if peradventure, if God peradventure will give them repentance, to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. Now leaders of God's people are to be like their saviour, as we see him described in Matthew chapter 12, commencing at verse 18, which read thus, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive, nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoke in flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. The Lord Jesus himself said, Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And you know, humility should be one of the hallmarks of God's ministers. In their ministry, they will encounter opposition, sometimes very unpleasant opposition. But they are to deal with such opposition gently and graciously. 
They are to communicate God's truth to others in an effective manner, with, with forbearance, with humility, seeking to instruct in righteousness those people who, because of erroneous thinking, oppose themselves, being, as it were, self-condemned. It may be that God will use the wise instruction of his ministers in granting a change of heart to those previously in error, so that those who once opposed the truth may do so no longer. We know that God alone can change people's hearts, but he often uses the ministry of his word to do this. And some who were previously under satanic influence, as are all those who oppose the truth of God, may be graciously released from that bondage. You know, we have heard tell of men and women who had been involved in cults for many years, but who have since been delivered from their bondage. They have been gloriously saved. There have been Roman Catholic priests who have come to a knowledge of the truth and are now serving God in true ministry. And has not God often used the patient and gentle ministry of his true servants to bring about these changes? And thus we rejoice to hear of all those who have been recovered, as it were, out of the snare of the devil. Well, we've come to a conclusion, uh, the end of our third study in 2 Timothy, and I trust that there are certain phrases that we have come across this evening that will remain with us. In particular, I hope that we have all seen how important it is to be approved unto God. I hope that we will all desire to be workmen who need not to be ashamed. And I hope that we will highly esteem those who rightly divide the word of God, those who oppose false teaching. And I trust finally that we have also seen how we all ought to be vessels unto honour, meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Well, may the Lord help us to be such vessels. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com. That's grace2seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.